Good day, listeners. This is your host, Michael Martins, with the Martins Critical Review, broadcasting this morning from a snowy, wintry day here in West Kelowna, British Columbia. In today's episode, we continue our series on the early peopling of the Americas, this time focusing on Amazonia and the peoples that occupied and modified this region. Joining us today is Dr. Mark Robinson, a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Exeter. Dr. Robinson's research focuses on environmental archaeology and applying interdisciplinary techniques to explore human-plant relationships. His research has particularly focused on human-environment interactions, including wood and charcoal identification to understand resource exploitation and anthropogenic impacts on the forest. He has worked extensively throughout the New World with ongoing projects in Belize, Brazil, Bolivia, and Colombia, with contexts ranging from the peopling of the Americas during the late Pleistocene to the collapse of the Mayan civilization. In earlier research, Dr. Robinson applied a novel methodology using GIS modeling, vegetation prediction, and isotope geochemistry to isolate humans from climate as the principal driver of vegetation change during the late Holocene. Currently, Dr. Robinson is using airborne LIDAR to document forest structure and archaeology in Western Amazonia. Additional ongoing research in the remote Bladen Nature Reserve in Belize has uncovered some of the oldest tropical skeletons in well-defined stratigraphic sequences. Dr. Robinson, it's a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for your time and welcome to the show. Thank you, Michael. Thanks. I love your introduction. <laughs> oh, very good. I, I think I stole it from your uh, university bio there. <laughs> you sounded familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So I guess first off, can you share with the listeners how you became interested and passionate about archaeology and the early peopling of the Americas? Yeah, it's a, it's a, actually it's a somewhat interesting route I took. Um, to do a very abbreviated version, but going back a bit, actually my background's in geography and then I ended up getting passionate about the ancient Maya. And this was just through reading a uh, coffee table book, just on world mythologies. And I was flicking through and you go through the typical ones, which we used to, at least in England, go to the British Museum, you're full of Egyptian and Assyrian and Greek and Roman and all these old civilizations. But then it's when I hit upon the uh, Central American and the Aztec and the Maya, it just blew me away. It's something I've never seen before. We really don't know that much about these kind of cultures over in England when it's not part of our typical curriculum. So I got fascinated by that and not teach myself to read hieroglyphs, at least basically, and looking at all the artwork and things like this. So I finished up my degree, but I was so passionate about it. I thought I've got to see if I can make something work. So I ended up doing an art history masters in England because there was one university which had a bit of a Latin American um, program. And there was one guy there who was teaching a little bit of Maya art as well. So I did that. But while I was undertaking the masters, I went to Central America to see the sites and backpack around for six months. And while there, I happened to be reading a book about the ancient Maya. I borrowed off uh, the owner of this rundown ramshackle hotel in Belize. And as I'm lying in the hammock, it's early in the morning, maybe 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning, this woman walks down the stairs and is staring at me. This is a bit weird. And then she walks over and goes, oh, here we go. And then she goes, good morning, I'm Heather McKillop. Name sounds familiar. I look at the book and it's her name emblazoned <laughs> down the back. So she was a Canadian archaeologist based at Louisiana State, but um, down to prospect if there was a project down there. She'd done a load of work in the area previously, hence the book, which I'd happened to borrow off the, <laughs> the owner of the hotel. He neglected to tell me she was staying there. But uh, I ended up volunteering and working with her for 
about a month then. Then I carried on traveling around Central America and falling in love with the countries as well as just the artwork. And then um, managed to do another month with her and then ended up basically getting my PhD with her over in the States. So I moved to Louisiana and really went into the archaeology side, found that was much more my style rather than the art side. Love the art, but yeah, getting dirty and digging, that was, that was where the action was. So um, I came at it very much the Mayanist, looking at the culture, the ethnographies, everything about the Maya really, and then with the archaeology thrown in. So I was doing that for my PhD and so forth. But then I ended up uh, working on multiple projects across the country, volunteering with different people. And in the summer, I'd go down and just stay there and volunteer on different projects. And, you know, make, you make friends and work with them. Ended up being field director for a couple other projects as well, which helped out. So I got to work in like, the caves and then um, as well as the coastal work with Heather was un actually in submerged sites underwater, normally shallow water. So we didn't have to scuba or anything like that. But you're working out in the Caribbean Sea, well, a swamp, but it's not a bad way to exist. And then uh, I started working with Keith Proofer as well, who's done a lot of cave work, but he's working on some major sites down in southern Belize. And then it was a couple of years later that Keith was planning a new expedition to go and out into one of the most remote areas of Belize in this beautiful um, forest part of the Blade and Nature Reserve. And he had the idea to look for the Paleo Indian. And he had done his uh, dissertation research out there looking at some caves, and there's a lot of Maya sites. So him under Peter Diamond had done this work back in the uh, 90s. But he had this idea that potentially this is a perfect location to look for a really early human component. It's got these dry rock shelters, which they'd found Maya burials in, but hadn't dug to the base of the sediments. And uh, they were facing the right way. They're facing, they're close to rivers, so resource rich and all the rest of it. So a small band of us went out couple of days to hike out there, carrying all our gear and all our food. And we excavated one of these rock shelters and we hit so many skeletons. It was ridiculous. We had to stop and avoid skeletons because we just couldn't carry them and, and deal with them with this small exploratory uh, trip. And they looked old. They looked pre-Maya, certainly pre-ceramic. And they were getting down deep. So a couple of meters down. And uh, sure enough, they came out 10,000 year old, but some of the earliest. So we then had this continuous record of, uh, of actual skeletal material. Now we were just hoping to hit something like maybe a youth surface. If we got a, a half would be amazing or some kind of fire pit or like a lithic tool would be amazing just to document it. But no, we got burial after burial. So it's been incredible. And that has been a really rich project since then. And it's still ongoing. We've had a few publications out looking at some of the lithic material. We're gonna have to redate some of the lithics, which previously had only really been found in disturbed or surface context. So they've been assigned dates based on other associations, but it was always tentative. We've been able to date those much, much earlier and show how they fit into a more of a regional across Central and Southern South America, a regional pattern of lithic diversity. Um, some of the traits also suggest different movements of people and ideas between the South um, into South America and then back up into Central America. So the burial has also given us an amazing resource to explore actual humans and what humans are doing. A recent paper that came out was looking at the isotopes within the bones, so looking at people's diet. And for this, we really want to focus on things like maize, corn, when it becomes such a staple. We know for the Maya, that's almost all they ate. You've got that 
holy triumvirate of maize, beans and squash, but maize is your real core staple. So we look at the isotopic um, values in bones, it's almost exactly the same as a corn plant, they eat so much maize. And if you speak to most Maya, certainly traditional Maya today, it's not really food unless it's got maize involved in it somehow, some kind of tortilla or tamale or something like this. So we wanted to really focus in on that maize uh, part when it became a staple in the diet. And because we had this long sequence of burials, we've got over 50 individuals over that 10,000 year span, so there's just no record like it. We could show from the earliest times when there's no maize, obviously, it's a sea-free diet, they're eating different fruits and nuts, no doubt, uh, with a lot of hunting, and all the animals be consuming different um, plants on the landscape as well. But then we see around 4,000 years ago that, or four and a half thousand, you get a little bit of a C4 signal, this maize signal, maize being a grass rather than the C3 signal of all the other trees and plants around. And then we see it really take hold. And by two and a half thousand years ago, it's just dominating their diets. So we see that real birth of agriculture within the record. So amazing uh, a set of results from there. But then we start to look at some of the relationships of how maize may be arrived. And we know the earliest maize is domesticated up in the Balsas region of central Mexico. So that's where we have the oldest um, versions of the Tiacinti, of this wild ancestor. But it looks like they were never able to fully domesticate it there. And it may be because there was too much Tiacinti pollen in the air, essentially. So as he's trying to domesticate, and you're selecting obviously your specific kernels from the biggest gloom, and then you're planting those it kept crossbreeding with the, the wild varieties. So it never was able to really take hold. However, we, the genetics of maize done by some of our colleagues, including people who've worked on the projects I've worked on, they managed to show that in Amazonia and down in um, Southwest Amazonia in particular, you actually get, and the Andes, you get a separate domestication event. So it looks like this wild progenitor is partly domesticated there's some kind of genetic evolution with selection of traits. That then moves with population or if it's traded, so I'm sure exactly how uh, these things move across the landscape. But when it gets to South America, it goes through a second enhancement or a separate domestication event where that wild seed is now can take off because it's not getting the inputs from this other wild varieties of Tiacinti. You actually get this incredible diversity of corn varieties. So it's when, if you go to a market in Peru, it's amazing that just the varieties of corn available, so much more than you ever see in Mexico. And Mexico blew me away when I went to the first markets there and you just see all these varieties of corn, which I've never seen previously. But you go to South America, you're like, wow, <laughs> they really were able to form these new genetic lines. So there's really interesting things like that. And then potentially with that technology developing in South America, they're moving its way back up into Central America. Yeah, uh, like the, the, the redistribution of those new genetics back to the, the origin. Yeah, so we start to see this shift of maybe people, uh, genetics, plant genetics, tools as well. Some of the olympics they share really specific traits with South American varieties. So there's a potentially this early migration into South America, but then a backwards movement of people and ideas. So it's, it's fascinating times, but I mean, that's getting us a little bit aside from your actual question you asked about how <laughs> going to it. But yeah, so that was me getting into the Belize stuff. But then with that has been this separate work in South America, which is now starting to, you know, draw together. And for that, we just started a new project funded by the European Research Council, um, which is looking at these early people in South America. 
We want to look at the peopling of it and see what impact, especially what impact they had on the vegetation and how they adapted to the environments at the time. Now our project is very much a environmental archaeology project and our history has been looking at you know, human environment interaction. Previously we've been focused on the last couple of thousand years, maybe up to 4,000 years. And we've done a lot of work across Amazonia, uh, both trying to document the archaeology out there, which is still so much of Amazonia is unknown, which is unexplored. So we were able to document some of those gaps and show really that Amazonia, the whole of it was essentially uh, settled. But also look at how people interacted with that landscape and how they fed themselves. We've been able to show fairly clearly using a combination of different soil isotopes and uh, archaeobotany and with modern vegetation plots and things that they lived in a fairly sustainable way or at least some groups. Some groups were very much into big architecture and um, needing to use large-scale agricultural features, earthworks, things like your raised fields and ditches and so forth, but other ones were using a much more um, subtle method of enriching the soil and then enriching the forest around it probably taking out the species which are not very um, economically important aren't fruiting don't produce fibers and so forth and then replacing them over time so you've got a, a forest composition which is rich in useful species and then with the enriched soils you can grow uh, more crops as well especially nutrient demanding crops like your corn and your manioc so some of that sustainable living we're basically looking at it as a polyculture agriculture, um, polyculture agri, you know, <laughs> whatever it was, polyculture agroforestry. Yeah, that's yeah, it. yeah, yeah. Um, so, so hang on, we've got some questions for you on that subject later on. So let, let's, let's wait to, to, to delve into those details. Um, what, what I did want to get from you is what, what, um, so at this point, given, given the research, say the research we're at presently, what are the possible origins and migration routes uh, for the early peopling in the Amazon region? You know, where did they come from and what are the commonly accepted theories uh, to support uh, that, those patterns at this point? Yeah, so I think there's been some good recent work, um, especially some of the genetic work. And there's two major genetic papers came out from two of the main um, DNA labs. And uh, that's looking at the migration of people into the Americas and then down through Central and South America. And we do seem to have this initial wave of people coming through with that Bering Straits as the origin of people into the Americas. That seems to so far uh, be supported by the genetic work. Now, whether there's separate populations involved or which then die out or do get admixed, um, it's still really to be determined. But certainly it seems like we've got a couple of waves of people coming down. So then entering into South America, what we do know is we've got some really early dates up in the Bogota plateaus, up in the Andes, um, which going back potentially 20,000 years. We certainly have good confirmed dates of 13 and probably a little bit earlier than that, 14, 15,000. Um, we're actually going to try and we, we just relocated the site which had 20,000 year old dates. And we're hoping to get back there and try and excavate a bit more of the air and try and really refine that chronology. But um, we do know that when we go further south into southern Chile, you've got people there by you know, 14,000, which uh, Tom Dillahay worked with. So certainly people have got into South America quite early and then spread across it. What's really interesting with Amazonia is that the early states, which is uh, new research out there from uh, Colombia, 
which is associated with all this rock art we're finding down there with Ice Age megafauna depicted. We've got really secure dates now of about 12,500 uh, years ago. And it's calibrated dates. And we've got three separate rock shelters within a small area uh, over a course of maybe eight or so kilometers. But uh, we've got three separate contexts which have really good intact stratigraphy. And then the basal layers on the first use surface with sterile mixed soil, then sterile below it, is that first use surface in each case is 12,500, give or take 100 years. So we're looking pretty confirmed that this is our earliest people into Western Amazonia currently, certainly in this context. This is an ideal context. We've got beautiful uh, landscape. It's very salient for people. It's got large rock outcrops. So as a landmark, it's perfect. It's on the ecotone boundary as well between savannas and forest. So it's ideal for resources as well. We're still working on the full reconstruction of the vegetation, but we know there's a lot of palm on the area and they were eating palm, as well as hunting different animals, especially a lot of aquatic animals, both ones which live in the water or use the water a lot and like to be in those kind of environments. So we know we've got 12,500 there, but we know in Eastern Amazonia, so over a thousand miles away, you've got dates 600, 700 years earlier. Uh, some of the, the caves out there, Caverna Pedro Pintada, which uh, Anna Roosevelt written about previously. So we know people have managed to get across that, that far. It doesn't currently look like they went through the forest, through the Amazon basin itself, with our dates being so late. So potentially a northern route following around the coast of, uh, of South America would probably be a likely one. We certainly know the coasts are uh, resource rich from both the actual marine resources as well as those environments on the on the land itself. When we look to Santa California obviously we've got incredible um, uh, early archaeology way down the coast there. So those savannas would also provide quite a nice hunting ground especially for the megafauna that was on the landscape at the time. When we look to Venezuela there's a site called Time of Time which is a beautiful kill site with an adult and a juvenile mastodon with projectile points within the bones, between the shoulder blades, in the pelvis and things, with cut marks on the bones and the whole lot, um, with good dates over 13,000 years old, with some of the dates going back quite far, but um, potentially earlier than that, depending on the, whether we agree with those dates, they were a little bit up in the air just because of some of the mixed context, but certainly older than 13,000. So we have some earlier dates surrounding and then coming into the Amazon from the east but then it looks like they're coming to the Amazon from the West around about 12 and a half thousand. So who these people were and how they got there is still up in the air. There's two main routes they potentially took for a, on a more local scale to get into Western Amazonia. One being from the Bogota Plateau, which is at 3000 meters, it's, it's high. You can definitely feel the altitude when you're out there and you'll see very distinct landscapes, but potentially they, they migrated down, just came down slope, and then entered into the lowlands and into the Amazon basin. The other potential is going through that northern route um, where the landscape is fairly flat and then coming through the Llanos Orientales, essentially a large savanna area, and then moving further south into what is the Amazon basin. Currently the, the principal hypothesis is from a, a Bogota, savanna the Bogota um, origin. The dates work out a little better based on the archaeology we have, there's very little archaeology in the Llanos to really help us understand that area. And then the lithic toolkit we have so far from the Amazon, it matches the, or cl more closely matches the Bogota lithics we see, this Abriens 
style, which are these edge ground cobbles. It's quite a basic um, uh, lithic technology, but it matches close to that. There's also rock art up on the Boltar Plateau. It's not exactly so, so hang on, before we get there, I get a couple questions um, on, so that the, the Mastodon site in Venezuela, the projectile points that were found there, uh, what, what do they resemble in terms of other known uh, lithics that we, that we can uh, uh, draw a conclusion about? Yeah, I've actually not seen them in person, but they are El Hobol points. So they have been often compared as a set in part of the, that Clovis first uh, argument that it doesn't work for Clovis first when you've got these, which are 13,000 years old at least, as projectile points and found in this totally different continent at this point. So they are projectile points. Um, I'm not a lipicist, so I don't want to do a disservice by <laughs> talking too much about the technology itself, but they're distinct from the other points, uh, the, from the fishtail points you typically find in South America, and they're distinct from the Clovis and the, the more northern types. Okay, so, so uh, it sounds like a separate offshoot potentially that's uh, maybe a, a population which developed its own or, or lost the, the origins technology specifically and developed their own? It seems to be, yeah, that in that early wave of peoples, you kind of have this two separate traditions, the Clovis up in North America, which is this, this early technology. But then in South America, uh, contemporary with it, you have the fishtail points. So there do seem to be two separate traditions, which you'd assume is to do with different population movements. And maybe that earliest population, where they had Clovis technology or whether they were independent of that, there's a separate tradition associated with South America. And then you find in between and in some of the locations, like the Clovis points do appear in South America in early context. Fishtail, not so much, probably up further north, but some of those traits do start to mix between the contexts. And when we look to say the Belize sites, we're seeing elements from both north and south. Uh, so yeah, it's interesting that technology. Yeah, or I mean, or we th throw in um, the uh, uh, Bradley's Salutrian hypothesis, and you know we get into uh, technologies which are predate the Clovis. And you know, if they're a seafaring people, they may have worked their way down the eastern coast, the eastern seaboard of the United States, and wound up in the Caribbean. I mean, it's not a uh, far too far flung idea potentially. I think there's there's merit to all these ideas. Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see how results come out. I mean, as we uh, I think as we've mentioned previously, is that we have just a tiny fraction of what's happened this time period. Yeah. We've got little pinpricks here and there, and we're changing our ideas constantly as we get a new data point and start to revise this. So. I wouldn't be surprised to see some revisions and some different migration routes. Now, whether all these were successful and managed to then really um, settle themselves on the landscape and incorporate themselves is a whole other question, or they were going to get independent groups moving across the landscape and then dying out, maybe with right. no impact at all. Right. <clears throat> now, in, in terms of this um, uh, migration from the Bogota Plateau, um, uh, I guess, south uh, eastward, um, that seems to also con uh, sort of agree with the onset of the Younger Dryas and, and perhaps that uh, high elevation plateau became less hospitable and they were looking for more friendly climatic conditions. Is that a potential? Yeah, so the recent publication we did this year from our early context to get those information out, that's one of the things we're, we're suggesting or hypothesizing. It's what certainly our hypothesis we're going to test is whether the Younger Dryas was a factor in this movement of people to 
what is Yamazoo? It becomes, it certainly coincides uh, temporally. Now, whether there's actually a direct relationship is what we need to try and decide or try and uh, discern. We know from the Bogota Plateau, it's going through major changes from the late Pleistocene into the early Holocene. And the Younger Dryas is this interesting time period where we've got this transition as we come in into more Holocene-like conditions. So things are getting warmer, things are getting wetter. And then this is reversal back to essentially ice age conditions in the Younger Dryas. Now, the big thing that happens in the Bogota Plateau is that because it's such high elevation, you get a shift in the tree line and the vegetation uh, zonation over a vertical zonation. So whether it's enough of a vertical shift that resources become really scarce, um, and then there's that knock-on effect that if resources scarce for just your subsistence, is it also scarce for the different fauna, especially megafauna? And we've got different megafauna kill sites on the plateau as well, which date to 13,000 and so forth. So you had megafauna dying out at the same time, they become really uh, resource poor. So was it then a push factor for people to leave the plateau and start seeking other resources? What becomes really interesting is that when you look to the entry into the Amazon, so our sites down in um, the Colombian Amazon, it's not really the Amazon proper at this point. We're probably in a mixed environment. There certainly are these tropical forest elements and there's a lot of palm out there. There's, there's at least 10 species because we know they're eating them. We have that in our earliest context in the archaeobotany. But there's a few other tropical trees we're seeing in the results. There's no pollen from this area at that time period. There's just, we don't have any good sediments. It's one of the things we're looking for and we're certainly hoping we can try and find a, um, or can create a good record. We're having to reconstruct the environment from proxies essentially or less direct proxy. But either way, even if the environment on the plateau is undergoing change, what they're moving into is probably undergoing a lot of change as well. So it's an interesting one when you talk about pioneers. I mean, there's one thing being a pioneer and going somewhere you know or can at least predict what's going to be there. But there's another thing when that's potentially undergoing under huge change, potentially even more drastic change than we see on the plateau. Now, whether that's true or whether it is more drastic or not, we don't know because we haven't got the good rate of construction. But maybe with enough forest uh, resources plus the different hunting that's possible in the area, it was quite an attractive uh, resource rich area. And then once they've started to establish themselves, even though the forest is becoming more dominant, they're now adapting on a you know, yearly basis. So that's still the hypothesis we're working with. And it's, it certainly is um, a likely scenario, but yeah, whether we can actually refine it to say that this is the motivation for this migration into Amazonia, hopefully we can, or at least- yeah, I think I saw somewhere in the in the research there that there, there could have been up to a six degree, six degree Celsius temperature shift uh, at that time period up at the the Bogota plateau and you know I guess that that goes from maybe uh, reducing the impact of the tropical heat uh, and being a being a comfortable environment to one where the nighttime temperatures may have been uncomfortable for sure um, we tend to think humans are fairly adaptable to climate, especially in the tropical boundary, but we are at high elevation here. But I think the migration across the Bering Straits, I mean, humans managed to survive that into absolute frigid conditions with very few resources around. So as a species, we're fairly adaptable, but it's certainly, I mean, I 
I've shivered my way for a few nights up on the Bogota Plateau, and this is in the late Holocene. So um, <laughs> I could see that migration down south might be quite attractive. For sure, for sure. And so what, what was the, we've kind of sort of stepped around the, the, the topic. What, what did we see um, in, in that savanna? I mean, that was a, very much like a, an open savanna we would see today in Africa, um, or, or what, was the, what was the climatic conditions <clears throat> and the antecedent vegetation? Yes, yeah, so it's an interesting one where we, again, we're still working on these reconstructions. There is a mix. And I, I was looking recently at a, um, a biome map for Colombia. Uh, it's a modern reconstruction. I think it might be the Nature Conservancy who constructed it. And they used a number of different techniques, using a lot of satellite imagery and um, Landsat and so forth, and then did some ground truthing. And they categorize on the modern environment, it's like 713 different habitats. So the range is incredible. Now, obviously within that, you've got probably about 120 of them are just savanna types based on the species composition, how many trees are present, what type of trees and so forth. But it obviously is a very diverse landscape. And this is actually probably one of the most diverse landscapes in the world because you've got such an elevation change. And then not just the elevation change, the climate system is bizarre. You're on the equator, so you've already got two different air uh, movements around the equator. Then you've got the ITCZ pushing up and down, uh, changing uh, rainfall patterns. You've got the Caribbean Sea, which has got its own sea surface temperatures and impacts on uh, climate. Then you've got the Pacific, which is obviously a massive impact. And then with the Andes, you get all these different climate systems and weather movements hitting it and causing different rainfall. So some areas are getting really wet, other ones on the other side of the Cordillera are really dry. So it's a really difficult to reconstruct. And then when we look to the reconstructions that exist, and Colombia's actually got a lot of pollen work being done. I mean, Henry Huginstra and Thomas van der Ham in particular really were pioneers and did a lot of work across different environments to reconstruct. So it's an incredible record, but it's still not quite enough to get this resolution we really need to understand on the basis which would help us understand how people adapted. And we look at some of the reconstructions like um, Dolores Piperno did amazing reconstruction when she talks about early people in and um, plant use across the Americas. It's very broad categorization of landscapes, which is inevitably what we have to do. However, is it really showing this, uh, the more fine points of what's actually happening, what corridors people might have taken? It's one of the things we're going to have to look into a lot more detail and try and reconstruct on in different ways. But it's one of the things we're hoping to do is fill in the gaps. But certainly within these savannas, there's a mix. So you've got some which are just pure grasslands, essentially, with some you know other shrubs. It's ones which do have a number of tree elements as well. Um, the fauna which would be on these, it's harder to reconstruct without good you know faunal collections. We're going to do some DNA work from some of the sediment cores to look for animal DNA actually in them, especially, you know, from their feces. If animals come to a watering hole to drink, they often are doing some bodily fluids again in there as well. So hopefully we can actually use that to reconstruct some of the animals on the landscape. And these will be in stratigraphic sequences. So there's some fun research going on there. But um, how these how the different animals would have adapted or be supporting these habitats that's going to help us try and understand both what the, the habitats were but also what resources were available uh, for people so it's a bit of a mix um savannas certainly are attractive for hunter gatherers we've known that 
today, even with ethno uh, ethnographic work, that they definitely are an attractive proposition, mainly for the hunting. So maybe those ecotone boundaries, when you get into the savannah with then the uh, more forested elements, they may be ideal locations. Probably one of the things that's key, especially when it's getting to these large savannas like the Amazon Orientales, is access to water. It's all very well being able to hunt something, but both the animals need water and the humans need water. So looking for those permanent water bodies uh, where there's fresh water available, that might be a key way to look at how people adapted to these landscapes. Interesting. And so am I correct in, in, in my assumption that, you know, 12, 13,000 years ago, uh, the Amazon, as we know it today, in terms of the, the, the forest was much smaller and, and may have been more in the, the gallery forest category uh, than what we see today. And, and that these climatic shifts that we've seen over time, uh, together with the influence of the people, have created the, the forest there? Yeah, this is, this is really the key thing for us as a project to look into. And it's debated. This is an ongoing debate. I think a lot of a lot of the early debates had said that the Amazon just wasn't a tropical forest at the time. Um, there's a lot of ideas that it's a, a patchy forest where you've got these potentially gallery forests, but also just patches of tropical forest interspersed between savannas and dry forests and so forth. Uh, more recent work by Mark Bush. Um, and some of his colleagues have actually started to question some of this and where they where there's been previous predictions of dry forest or savanna they've actually been able to show that it was fully forested with tropical forest now we do certainly know that the climate wouldn't have supported the amazon as it is today there's no way it could have supported this tropical moist forest to the extent it is so the exact makeup of the forest is still in debate but we certainly know there would be a lot more savanna elements a lot more dry forest uh, a lot less of the, the humid wet forest or, uh, that we see today. So it's, it's going to be an interesting one to try and reconstruct these kind of res, um, uh, resources or, or records to get back to that time period in the tropics, in tropical forest is so difficult. It's just trying to find the lake which is deep enough and has those kind of sediments is so difficult. It's, there's so few around. And then when you're talking about an area this size and questions about its patchiness, you almost need a record every you know, 20 kilometers to actually be able to reconstruct um, in any kind of accurate way. Obviously, the more data we do get, we can do more predictive models and looking at the biogeographical um, characteristics of each of the cores we do take and trying to reconstruct what the environment was in each. But I mean, you mentioned a good point though about uh, the human impact at this point. And this is, I think, a really interesting element and one which we're directly trying to explore with the project is what role did humans have in creating the Amazon forest and especially in the biodiversity that we see today. Now, see, the Amazon is the most biodiverse landscape on the planet, yet we know people have been there as it establishes. So for our area, we've, from the little bit of result we've got, we know they're eating a load of palm there's at least 10 species of palm they're eating. So with consumption of that, that potentially they're clearing out other trees around it, potentially they've then got seeds that are being discarded, um, which are then propagating. Are they then impacting that forest composition? And how long does this then, uh, is it to an extent which actually causes a change in the forest composition, forest dynamics? Our work which is 
previously focused on the last couple of thousand years, maybe going back 4,000 years, we can actually show pretty clearly there's a human impact on soils and on vegetation composition, which lasts to today. Now, in, it's not just the vegetation composition, it also changes the whole of fire dynamics as well. So there's some really interesting human impacts which continue to influence Amazon um, biodiversity. Some of the other really interesting research when we looked to some of our colleagues, um, like Terstegi, he was able to show that, trying to get this right, there's 16,000 species of tree in the Amazon. So hugely diverse. However, it's only about 200 of those species account for 50% of all the trees. So huge species diversity, but the majority of the actual trees in the Amazon is actually not very diverse. And of those trees, a high proportion of them are economically important for humans as either food or fiber. So is that a remnant of human impact that there has been this selection for uh, useful trees or impact on uh, composition? Yeah, you've got localized diversity. So you do get this incredible uh, richness out there, but do we actually see this human signal on the overall diversity? I think it's still debated. I think you'll see both ways. Probably a lot of archeologists and anthropologists want to go with the human side and a lot of the ecologists would say that's a natural distribution but uh, we probably meet somewhere in the middle. But what's oh. amazing with the context when we find things like uh, the, the work in Lindosa in Colombia, where you've got 12 and a half thousand years, this is while the Amazon is establishing and we've got humans there, they're eating plants. So we can start to actually address these questions directly. So what was uh, life like for those early people? Uh, you know, we've mentioned a few things they've eaten. Um, do we know about their social organization or, or trade? What, what uh, maybe, maybe you know, sort of paint a bit of a picture for us and what that was like for those early days. I mean, that's an opportune use of a, a word there to paint, their, <laughs> paint a picture of their life because, yeah, it's notoriously difficult, obviously, to reconstruct um, the lives of people from the past, especially hunter-gatherers who don't have a permanent settlement. But the thing with the Colombian work, as well as some of the other locations around uh, South America, is the rock art, the early rock art. This is a direct reference to these people. And beyond just a, um, that kind of stale, sterile results we get from most of our archeology span where we're just getting numbers from counting whatever remains it is and trying to reconstruct. The artwork really is that representation of how people conceive of themselves, of humanity, of their social groups. Um, it's, it's a fundamental concept of art. What I mean, art's so fundamentally human. Um, something you don't really see in other species that this is how we perceive our world around us and our role in the world and what we can represent from both the taboo through to the, the kind of the general or the mundane to the, the cosmic. So I think this is gonna be our biggest insight into past lifeways on that kind of social scale. And if we look at the art, and this is one of the largest corpuses of rock art or indigenous art in the Americas. So it's an amazing collection that we've just scratched the surface on. We've documented it's there, but we haven't fully documented what's there. Uh. And we certainly haven't done the analysis yet. But we do see a lot of social interaction. So we see some really uh, simple things about lifeways from hunting, including hunting some of the megafauna, um, we see plants represented and things like this, but we see social groups. We see dancing, very clear depictions of it. Um, 
we see different animals dancing as well. We're seeing all kind of uh, concepts which are both um, hyper-realistic, so clearly seem to be representing things they've witnessed and then decide to depict, to things which seem to be very obscure and abstract, uh, potentially coming from more of the imagination or more from mythologies that are developing at this time. So delving into that is going to be quite fascinating, I think, um, and it's certainly going to be a focus for the project going forward as we try and get the right people involved to, to help us with this interpretations. But um, they're certainly in social groups. They've certainly got shared cosmological ideas because we're seeing repeated motifs, repeated um, concepts across multiple rock shelters. And they're similar ideas which you're seeing and depictions and art designs and styles, which we're seeing in various locations across South America, both in sites close by, well, 150 kilometers away at Chiribiquete, to even some of the work we're seeing in those Eastern Brazilian rock shelters like uh, Caverna Pedro Pindada. They're different. We can tell that they're done by different people, but you know, similar ideas are coming out. Just as we see later on, there's common motifs between the Maya to maybe the Inca and so forth. And I think sure. there are some shared ideas. And, and some, some of this cave art, I mean, it, it may just be that it, uh, it's of the same era that evolved independently. Uh, but in, in Eastern Brazil there in Pedro Fudara, uh, we see the this rock art, which to me looks very similar to the Khoisan art in Southern Africa. And um, at uh, Sierra La Lendoza, you know, it's a little different, but there's still some of the motifs which do seem very Khoisan-esque. Yeah, so this is a core idea of what it is to be a, a human as culture first develops. Um, we can maybe argue about what culture is, but when you start to see depictions in art, I think we're really looking at the birth of, of modern human culture. And it's fascinating that we do see similar practices globally, and not just the practice of depicting art and them being on rock shelters. I mean, rock shelters are an obvious location to find things. One thing it preserves, um, whereas you know, art drawn in the sand is not gonna preserve. But also they do offer some shelter and so forth and all the other benefits you get of being next to a rock shelter. Um, salient location on the landscapes, it's easy to return to as a landmark and so forth. And it's an obvious position to meet up with people return to. So it's not surprising we see rock art everywhere. And it's maybe not surprising we see some of the realistic elements. So people painting things like their food, <laughs> the different animals they hunt, maybe some plants. But it's when you see some of the other um, iconography, which does seem so similar across different human groups um, in such diverse regions. It does speak to something more central or core to being a human, about how we start to conceive our world and how we then start to develop our culture in a way to represent it and what we decide to represent. You know, yeah, I see a lot of uh, symbols in there that are repeated, like in terms of the lines and the dots and the, and the spirals, um, you know, and, and given our knowledge of, of the use of psychedelic substance amongst the Amazonian tribes, uh, you know, some of these theranthropic imagery could be depictions from their return from an altered state and they're, they're transcribing what they, their visions on, on the walls. Uh, have you come across any um, in in these uh, in the stratigraphy? Have you come across any examples of uh, you know ayahuasca or other um, vision-inducing plants? 
No, it's, it's currently not. Now there are some of the archaeobotanical analysis have identified to the family um, taxonomically, and some species within the family do have um, tossic elements which can potentially be used in this way. Um, there was a great bit of research it's announced recently, I think from North America, where it actually directly linked potentially the plant shape, a very distinct plant shape, um, to a hallucinogenic plant, which they also have in the archaeobotanical record. So it's from a much later context, I think only a couple of thousand years old. But um, when we saw that, we we started to look back at our own art to see what plants they are, and if we could potentially see those plants represented. Now, I would be very surprised if it's not an element of um, of some of this artwork and how you develop both shamanism and so forth. And certainly the early adoption or use of plants which have a toxic element, um, they're certainly used later on. So somehow they've got to develop the technology. And you know, the developing uh, things like agriculture and domesticating crops, a lot of it probably had to do with getting drunk or somehow getting into an altered state and fermenting things and so forth. So I think it's it's definitely a, a large possibility that some of these concepts are born out of it, or at least they're expanded in in these altered states. Interesting, interesting. And so when we see these depictions of the now extinct megafauna, are those depictions of what they were seeing uh, on the landscape, or or those depictions coming from oral traditions that they're painting as a means of sort of capturing those images for in perpetuity. This is the thing which we're hoping to resolve. Um, we'd ideally get some actual faunal remains from the local context. Um, we currently don't have any megafauna. We we're just talking today about this and how um, what we'd likely see a rock shelter which is not the kill site. And if we had actually get bones being removed and returned to the kill uh, to the Central domestic site being the uh, the rock shelter versus the kill site, which is going to be out probably in the open somewhere. Um, unfortunately, we don't have any faunal remains from this context. Now we do have faunal uh, megafaunal remains in other contexts, both on the plateau and places like Venezuela's time and timer and so forth. So the thing we do look to is within the rock art is a lot of the characteristics of the pictures themselves are very realistic, they're very specific. Um, things like the mastodon, which is actually quite an abstract um, image as a whole, the body's just kind of a, a, a chunk, a big a block. But when you look to the head, there's a very distinct pattern, which uh, shaped to the, the back of the head, which is very much like a mastodon's head, which you don't see in other species. Now the trunk and potential tusks then aren't so specific, but there's little elements like that. It's like when we see the horses, the way they represent horses are very much like the South American horse and not like the European horse or anything like this. They're very specific. Some of the deer and the paleo, potential paleo llama, again, things like the neck and the, the head shape and then the, the tail and things, it's very specific. So we tend to think that these are representing things they've actually physically seen rather than just passed down. Um, Certainly in this region, we've got the biggest collection of what seems to, so far that seems to be megafauna. We don't really see it in other locations either. And things like on the plateau, they've rock art, but we don't see these kind of representations. So we tend to think this is um, 
a direct representation of what they're encountering at this time period. That's interesting. That's interesting. Um, so, and, and so, in, and in terms of diet, then of, of these people, it would have been a combination of of what they were hunting, uh, which which could have included megafauna, um, as well as a collection of, of plants that they would have been foraging for. Yep. So we we certainly know they've got a, a large plant-based their diet. Um, from the earliest levels, we've got ten different plant, uh, palm species. So this is quite interesting in itself is that when you're entering a new landscape and you're trying to work out what's edible, especially if you come through either from the, the plateau or you've come through the Llanos, there's not that much palm. There's maybe some around, but there's not a whole lot, but they're entering into this tropical forest in whatever state it is, and they're immediately adopting multiple palm. Um, now palm obviously is quite recognizable without even if you don't know the species, all the family looks very similar. So if you know one of them's edible, you've got a high chance that the next one's going to be edible as well. So we do see that targeting of things like palm. And this lasts actually through the whole history at the rock shelter. We don't really see domesticates ever coming in. So they're relying on these uh, tree fruits and things right through for the next few thousand years. Now that's, that's a portion of the diet. Unfortunately, we can't tell what proportion it is because we don't have the, the bones themselves to look at. But we do have some of the faunal bones from the, these cave sites or rock shelters. And there's a range of things they're eating. The most represented is fish. So we've got the river quite close by. And there's two main species. Um, I'm blanking on one of them. One of them is piranha. And the other one I'm forgetting. It begins with P for locally. But uh, yeah, there's a couple of spe fish species. And then there's a lot of things which like to occupy that um that riverine system from different amphibians from frogs and things to um turtles i believe there's um snakes which typically like to hang out in the in these more um watery swampy areas and then there's a few of the more terrestrial mammals things like um uh, capybara paca so things that are absolutely delicious um currently we don't have any monkey and we don't have really any birds which is kind of interesting when you think about the hunting techniques um, if you look to the modern um, indigenous communities in the area who are still quite mobile um, the nukak they hunt using either blowpipes or they use a bow and arrow with the, between the feet and they're hunting things like birds and monkey now we don't have any of that in the record so are they not employing these technologies to actually hunt uh, things are high up in the canopy. I don't know, but currently it doesn't look like it. So it looks like they're focused on some plants and then going to around these water resources, around the river and swampy areas, and then hunting whatever's available there and fishing. I mean, it's interesting that there's no uh, ducks or other uh, water-specific uh, bird species. I mean, I can kind of understand that, you know, they're not taking them out of the, out of the treetops, but, uh, you know, the, the, the ducks and such would have been a target, I would imagine, but it's interesting that they weren't remember, there. I can't remember if we have a Muscovy duck or not. We might do in the record. I'd have to look back through, but it's certainly not in large proportions. Mm, interesting, interesting. So the, the we kind of touched on it earlier, and, and uh, with the human manipulation of the Amazon forest ecosystem, um, just let's just touch base again on this and sort of cover a few more points. Uh, in terms of that distribution of the of the species, you know what we're seeing with greater abundance. And, um, you know, obviously that, that the hyper dominance of some of those uh, fruit and nut bearing trees is, is 
pretty uh, definitive, I think. Yeah, um, I think there is always arguments for how some of these ecological crises happen, but I think we're going to see this human signal getting pushed back earlier and earlier. It becomes the, the last couple of thousand years, um, it becomes much clearer because we have uh, larger populations and we have more distinct human uh, landscape scale transformations, things like the creation of anthropogenic dark earths, often called terra preta. So we're only really seeing those for 2000 years. There's a couple of earlier contexts, but really 2000 years. And that's where you see a massive change in, um, in species composition associated with it. However, when we look at some of those results we have from uh, contexts in Brazil and Bolivia we've worked on, yes, for 2000 years, we see this large investment in the land into creating these fertile soils. But if we look at the record, which goes a little bit longer, about 4,000 years, looking at things like pollen records associated, we actually see some of the things like domesticates, corn and manioc actually appearing before um, the use of these transformation um, and techniques before terra preta comes in. So I think as we start to look at some of the diet and some of these impacts, we're going to see a more subtle um, signal, but it is going to get pushed back further and further. Now, things like the domesticates, they take hold, which do require a degree of sedentarism to actually you know, grow your crops and maintain them. Um, that's probably coming much later, but for these more mobile groups, we're going to see a more subtle signal, I think, in the record where we're going to have to really try and refine down what we think is an ecological process and maybe climate driven versus what is human influenced. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose that if, if these peoples, as they were expanding through this territory, um, had come across plants that they considered to be useful, I mean, and the Amazon forest as we know it today had not yet completely developed. I mean, it's not uh, inconceivable that they were planting trees or, or modifying the landscapes. And that's perhaps one of the reasons that it's hyper-dominant simply because there was more of these trees planted and, and potentially uh, competing trees and shrubs that were weeded out and, and allowing the, their, their, you know, quote, quote unquote crop trees to flourish. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think that's definitely what we're going to see. And I think especially around sites, which become, uh, more important. So Lindosa might be a really interesting example where you've got rock art for multiple thousands of years. So people return to this location, even at, when I've worked out in uh, some of the locations in say Belize where we've actually been camping out in the jungle for a month at a time, over three years of doing that uh, and being back in the same spot, even though we're there only a month a year, we've changed the composition of the forest. We've <laughs> We've taken out a lot of palm because we've been using it to build thatches and things. We've uh, removed other small trees because we were constructing things. And then we've also cleared out some of the, the basil shrubs and herbs. Um, but then other trees, which are quite important, including some of the palm, we're deliberately leaving. So our influence is spreading more and more from our central campsite, which is next to the river, and getting further afield. So every year we go back and I have to you know, forage for materials. Um, it gets further and further. So we definitely see our impacts over a short time. Now, if you've got a, sure. a larger group who are living on the area, it's, it's not going to take much to change it. And how big is that group uh, that you're referring to in the in the Belizean jungle? That's normally about eight of us. Uh, so very small groups. I mean, if you, if you had a, a small community or, or a tribe of 30 to 50 individuals, you can imagine that uh, impact would be much greater, yeah. much more and significant. We're 
we're taking our food out there. So we're eating rice and beans every day, which we've hiked out there. And okay, we might supplement it with a little bit of jungle food, but it's hard sometimes to find, you know, edibles from the trees and plants out there, certainly to sustain us, uh, certainly when we're digging big holes. So yeah, the impacts can be felt <laughs> quite quickly and very strongly. That's interesting. That's, that's a great sort of modern uh, example of, of, you know, that you've witnessed firsthand over these success, uh, successive field seasons in terms of what you're witnessing in the bush there. Again, yeah, when we look to some of the data as we're you know, reconstructing our, from uh, the archaeological uh, record and things, we can become so removed from it and we're looking at numbers and we're trying to see what's statistically significant. But then once you've actually been down there and physically seen it and been a part of it, you start to really appreciate how much impact we can have. That's interesting. That's interesting. So there's uh, quite a bit of evidence of, of many of the edible plants being domesticated in the Amazon region. Uh, do you want to just touch base on, on what we're seeing in terms of the, the variety of species um, in that region? Yeah, it's certainly a, a hotspot and one of these global hotspots for domestication. Um, what may be interesting is how much happens in the Amazon rainforest or the tropical moist forest versus the, um, the savannah areas and the dry forest. Um, I don't think we've got a good handle on that currently. Now we know the region as a whole is certainly an area of, of domestic um, innovation, but uh, a lot of it's potentially happening, um, a lot of the tubers and things are actually maybe coming from further north up in the Andes or maybe even in the savannas of Bolivia. So I think some of the earliest dates for manioc now are coming out of the Llanos de Mojos in the savannah area, but we're on that ecotone boundary again. So whether agriculture develops outside of the forest or and with these domesticates, it's still, I think, up in the air. Um, I think we can probably argue both ways and it's hard to go to really be confirmed. So I think we're going to see a lot of enrichment and innovation within the, the forest itself. Um, but then working within some of these more polyculture um, agroforestry techniques is maybe more interesting, whereas a lot of trees they're, they're using, including a lot of palm, they don't really go for that domestication event. Um, they essentially don't really genetically change. So you just end up with the, the same species just being utilized over a thousand years or 10,000 years, unlike something like manioc or something or corn, which really requires that human input to, to make it something which is um, highly edible and highly productive. The one thing I think we have seen, which um, our group here at Exeter uh, documented a couple of years back, so um, one of our old PhD students, uh, Lautaro Hilder, a Brazilian, he looked at a Monte Castello, which is a large mound um, out in, it's along uh, the, um, the Itanez River between, on the border between Bolivia and Brazil. Now the area itself is not full forest, but we're getting into a very forest and it's basically surrounded by forest. And he's been able to document the domestication of rice there. Now rice, we always think as being um, an Asian and African crop. And certainly that's the one which we consume and which consume globally. It's either the Af Asian or African variety. And we know there's wild rices in the Americas that's been documented um, fairly conclusively, but the domestication of the American varieties have never been documented. So Monte Costello is really interesting where about 4,000 years ago, they started to selectively um, 
well, domesticated rice. They selected certain glooms and would plant to then increase the size of the glooms. They did increase those rice kernels. Um, but then that culture died out and with it, the domestication. So they right. actually got the full kind of life cycle of that, that event. So it's really nice. So you have got these innovations happening uh, within the Amazon proper. Interesting, interesting. And of course, the discussion of uh, early Amazonian agriculture wouldn't be complete without the discussion of the, uh, the anthrosols or the dark earths. Um, you know, what are these? How are they created? And, and what's their significance? Yeah, so there's a number of different names from them. Terra have been the primary name. We've tend to gone more towards Amazonian dark earths or potentially anthropogenic uh, dark earths. And then there's also a couple of varieties in there. And that's maybe even too simple as itself. Uh, traditionally, it's terra preta and terra mulata, preta being uh, Portuguese for black, then mulata are a type of brown. Now, we tend not to use terra mulata as a term because it's actually fairly derogatory as a term um, when it's been applied pre, or mulata has been applied to people in the past. But um, so we typically refer to them now as ADE, so Amazonian dark earth. And then recently with ABE, Amazonian brown earth. Although it's confusing, I get confused when I'm trying to talk about AD and ABE because they're so similar sounding. But what's interesting is you get a range of, of styles of soil. Now, essentially what they are is anthropogenically enriched soils. Now, this is really distinct where, when you're in a tropical setting where the typical oxisols or latisols that you get in tropical forests are very nutrient poor. You've got that top biomass where you've got all the vegetation, just all that humic layer. So it's really dense uh, with biomass in the, the top part, but none of that really gets into the soil. It all erodes so quickly and, um, and is, you know, that cycle is so quick in a tropical setting. So the soils themselves leach really easily and are not very fertile. So the Amazonian dark earths, there's actually a direct human input into the soils where they've enriched the soils and you get a very dark color. So much higher organic component, there's lots of charcoal typically in there. And when you do any kind of geochemistry, there's a huge um, increase in fertility indicators from uh, phosphorus and nitrogen, zinc and magnesium and a whole load of others. Now, how it got to that state has been debated. Typically, what we think of is with the ADE, the, the black soil, so they're very distinctly dark, um, and there's a range in colour. We typically think they're around the habitation area, and this is a byproduct of just general day-to-day -day life. So, from your fires, from cooking and warmth, from your uh, from your food production, there may be midden waste as well, all get incorporated in the soil. Then we tend to think that the terra mulata, this Amazonian brown earth, which is a lighter colour, these typically don't have any ceramics associated with them, whereas the terra preta has a lot of ceramics and other debris you'd expect of. Um, a general day-to-day -day living. So the mulata with brown earth, we tend to think of being directly or deliberately enriched to help support the crops on it, either as agricultural crops or as part of the uh, enriched forest. I think mean, there's still going to be some debate about exactly the processes and um, we just published a paper where it should be coming out soon. And some of the reviews came back in there, again, bring up similar, similar points when we talk about the gradient between the two. And if there's a distinct boundary, if there's real concepts behind creating the soils. 
um, when you read the literature, it does something get confusing because we talk about uh, these brown uh, dark earths and terra preta being highly fertile and they can support nutrient demanding crops. But then we also suggest that they're just a byproduct of human existence and not directly made for crops and the crops had grown elsewhere. So there does seem to be a bit of conflict even in with, within people's own writing when they talk about them. But essentially what we can say is that we've got a technology development which involves the enrichment of soil through the incorporation of various organic um, elements and things like charcoal as well. We've done, there's been some work and we did some work trying to look at exactly what was getting incorporated beyond charcoal and some of the kind of food residue. Um, seeing if there's things like feces. Now as came up negative so far, but there's, it's a pan-Amazonian phenomena. So there's probably multiple variants of what's the inputs are. We tend to think, and from our results and a colleague's results, that there are two distinct processes happening. Um, ones which are around the habitation site, creating these really dark uh, soils, which may be used as part of a, either whether it's a deliberate strategy or just the byproduct. It'd be hard pressed to think that they weren't using the dark earths immediately on their doorstep to grow your home gardens. Um, certainly if you look at any modern Amazonian community where there are dark, dark earths, um, they're using them and they know they're using them for the richer soils they are. So we tend to think there's probably this localized area around the, the core of the settlement, which you'll get in a lot of mid and field and things like this, creating these rich soils. And then there's these separate ones, which are in the more agricultural areas where there's either forest or um, agricultural lands being used, which are, they're also enriching the soils. And they, these don't appear in a lot of other tropical forests and they're not ubiquitous across the Amazon either. They are, you do find them all over, but there's a lot of cultures which didn't employ this technology. So it really is a technological development and not purely a byproduct. Hmm, that's interesting. And, and some of these soils are, are up to three meters deep, I understand. I mean, that, to me, that kind of says that this is less of a haphazard um, artifact of their occupation as, most, as opposed to something that there was deliberately done. I mean, that's a lot of work to, to create a soil of that uh, depth, even if it's over a period of a thousand years or something. It's, to me, it seems like a deliberate act. Yeah, for sure. There's, there's definitely a range. So a lot of ones we're dealing with are less than a meter deep, but um, there are some really, really deep ones. And just the fact it appears in so many locations associated with what we're coming to find more and more is that each of these areas we're testing and doing a combined archaeobotany with paleoecology. So we're looking at the, the long-term background environmental signal in the pollen, and then we're looking at very localized archaeobotanical analysis, specifically with phytoliths. So looking at very localized result, we're seeing it's part, it does seem to be part of the wider strategy where they're enriching the forest for um, edible species in particular, and potentially other economic species and weeding out the stuff which they don't really want. They're not clear cutting. We're not seeing that increase in um, things like grass, which you expect if there was clear cut um, and certainly in cultures where you see a lot of things like slash and burn, you do actually increase your grass pollen or phytoliths because once it's been clear cut and you've taken your crop out, the first pioneer species are typically grasses. So we're not seeing that in the record. We're basically seeing the proportions of grass and trees staying the same, but maybe with smaller clearances with fire and things like this to manage it for your crops, but not the large scale slash and burn we see elsewhere. 
So it does seem to be part of this polyculture agroforestry where they're living very sustainably actually with a lot of uh, enriched um, forests. So the forest producing a lot of food for them and then they're su supplementing it with different agriculture on a much smaller basis. But it seems highly resilient to climate change and, and social upheaval. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a very uh, sophisticated uh, agricultural model, actually, with the, the multi-story um, polycultures and uh, the use of these soils. I mean, it's a, quite a sophisticated agricultural model, certainly much more so than the, the slash and burn, which you're referring to. Yeah, so we've been uh, working with a lot of modern communities in the Amazon. Now, a lot of this did come about because we were analysing archaeological context within the, the region, and we were then staying with the villages and so forth and you get to know the people and then you start to realize that this is not just archaeology we're dealing with now we're actually dealing with um, conservation elements and not just conservation of the actual environment itself but of the cultures now that's not obviously trying to keep cultures static but finding a way that you can maintain um, community identity as well as uh, preserve lifeways and provide platforms for some of the communities to develop and we realized that the data we're developing has direct impact on some of these communities in the way they can actually set up their communities. So in Bolivia in particular, we've been working with a community and their practices essentially have been fairly sustainable, but they've been forced more and more to look to more destructive practices, in particular with either large scale agriculture with things like soy, um, yeah, soy in particular, or cattle ranching, which just clear cuts the forest. But we've been able to show that their ancestors use this very sustainable method to support a much larger population than there today, which is great. I mean, we can, you can try and put, push people towards that and say, okay, this, this will sustain you. But, you know, not everyone wants to live purely off the forest like that. But the diversity in the diet previously was actually much richer than they have in their diet today. And the community is really keen to promote their own heritage. And then we've been trying to open up markets where they can then discuss um, or open communication lines and uh, direct lines to different restaurants. You know, there's a global movement towards more organic foods and indigenous foods and things like this. So high-end restaurants are actually seeking out these kind of crops. Um, a lot of these indigenous crops, which have gone out of favor. So, it's actually hopefully providing a, a means where they can not only really enhance their identity, claim that heritage or reclaim their own heritage to, to this long history, but conserve the environment that's around them that they've, they've lived off of so long, actually enhance it and enhance their own life ways and enhance the economic development and all the rest. So it's a, it's a really fun side to our work, although we become so focused in the archeology span and that's obviously where our skills are. Um, it's been a fun thing to work with the anthropologists and with the local communities to provide the tools for the community to actually take control of their own development. Yeah, but it certainly seems like the, the sustainability was much greater in antiquity in terms of that, you know, living in, in harmony or communion with, with the resources around them. Yeah, and I think it's, it's one of the things we often romanticized maybe is that you know indigenous communities all live in harmony and hugging trees but when we looked at the amazon and we looked to the results over the last few years we were getting the amazon was densely populated and there's probably is a very large human signal 
of impacting biodiversity. So it's not this pure pristine wilderness with some indigenous folk kind of wandering through it. They were living in there, they're exploiting resources. Now, was there a way they, to exploit it in a sustainable way, potentially enriching the forest for certain species? Now, whether that's getting away from a natural forest, yeah, probably is, but is there still biodiversity? Yeah, so it's finding that balance. And, um, and yeah, I think we can show that in the past that people are impacting these landscapes, but not in the destructive way that has really taken precedent in more recent years and with industrialization. Yeah, I guess that's the that's the key point is that is the destruction versus the you know maybe harmony isn't the the correct maybe maybe it's a true stewardship of the land is maybe the the better way to look at that. Yeah, I think mean, I think that's a great concept. Yeah, idea of stewardship and certainly it's one of the concepts which the villagers have uh, brought up to us and we're keen to to support is the idea that they are stewards of the forest. Right. And when we look to the future. The predictions are that populations in tropical forests are going to rise dramatically and in by 2050 i think the idea is maybe half the world's population will be in tropical forests wow. um, based on current predictions so that's a huge amount and most of those are the most uh, economically poor uh, communities so finding ways which communities can um, live within the forest in a more sustainable way that will allow development and allow the um the development of these communities to give them access to the things they desire um but also maintain the biodiversity and these landscapes for the future i think it's essential and it's, it's nice that we can feed into that uh, are you familiar with uh, Oreño and Pizarro's campaign of uh, 1541? It's been a while since I read those things, but yeah. Yeah, so I mean, the, the account from uh, Caraval's, uh, the, the, he was a Dominican friar, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, and sort of describing what they saw as they, as they did that maiden voyage uh, for the Europeans down the, the Amazon rivers and the tributaries and just sort of depicting what they saw. Um, and you know, many people have discounted their observations because they were so fantastic compared to what was seen uh, subsequently. But uh, do, I mean, based on some of the things that you've seen uh, on the ground, I mean, are, are some of those observations potentially uh, a reality in terms of the development and the sophistication of what was there? For sure, it's it is difficult when you go there today, and you look at some of the landscapes and the archaeology you encounter, and it's hard to picture it with this cleared landscape and with large communities. But the more we look, the more we find not just um, the presence of humans, but humans doing incredible things, large earthworks, uh, things like in Brazil, where we've got the Inacre, and you've got, basically we found it, our colleagues found it a few years back, where the deforestation of the area for things like cattle ranching around Acre had revealed these massive earthworks. Now, obviously, Amazon doesn't have any real stone resources, so you don't get the large architecture you see in Central America, things like the Maya. But uh, you do find these large earthworks and multiple earthworks and connections with roadworks and all the rest of it over huge distances. And you're finding it everywhere now. And then when you've got technology like the Amazonian Dark Earth, it's not hard to imagine that 
when all this was populated, it would have been a thriving landscape. That it's, I love it when you do see a reconstruction, um, even if it's a media company who's gone a little bit wild and maybe on the, been on the ayahuasca themselves, but <laughs> you can't actually populate these landscapes, which is so hard to see when you're there yourselves and you're just on the ground and you're just surrounded by jungle it's you can't step back and see through the, the trees so yeah. i think that's for me that was great with the maya which i've worked with quite a lot and i worked on big cities but because so much of it now is under forest and you know in ruins it's really hard to imagine it as a populated city so we sit there and try and think about it and we obviously bring our archaeological knowledge to it and go oh yeah people will be doing this and this and what daily chores but to actually see it that way and really imagine it as a thriving city or landscape is very difficult. So I think when we saw things like, you know, Apocalypto, Melchizedek's Apocalypto, think what you like about the movie. And it's not definitely not my favorite movie, but the way he is able to reconstruct a city, when he had archaeologists helping him as well with as consultants and having a populated city with even things like scaffold up, it's not the single snapshot of a, a landscape, but you've got people doing things and things in action. It's amazing to suddenly see that and go, okay, yeah, yeah, now I can, <laughs> this, people were there. Yeah, and I guess given the, um, the, the rapid rate of biological processes in the area, you know, any of those earthworks and so forth, I maybe mean, that would get covered by the jungle in a generation or two. And, and until you have the ability to peel off that forest cover, it's completely hidden from view, even if you're standing on it in some, in some cases, I would imagine. Absolutely. I mean, even in, even in the Meyer area where there's, you know, giant temples, it's embarrassing how close I've been to a temple walking past it with a machete, like hacking away through and like, no, nah, there's nothing here. And then you see the LIDAR image later and you realize, and you see a GPS track and you're within, you know, 20 meters of a major temple, but you just didn't see it. So, <laughs> so you know, that, that's, a, that's a great segue there. What have your LIDAR survey shown? I mean, is there, is there, is there a tremendous amount of a sort of hard archeology span that we can see um, or that's emerging from the jungle through these surveys? Yeah, so obviously there's been a lot of LIDAR um, in the Maya area. That's probably the most spectacular examples. Um, so we, I've been involved with LIDAR down there and I think people have talked about that ad nauseum, although I think there's still a lot of work to be done and a lot more to be discovered and then a lot more analysis to be done. We've focused recently on the LIDAR in, in South America, which is, has been less used to a far lesser degree. Uh, we've actually been using our own LIDAR system. So unlike uh, most of the LIDAR images you see for sites, you basically pay a company to go and do it, which is, to be honest, the ideal way, because um, it's technically very difficult. But we ended up getting some extra funding to buy a LIDAR scanner, so we got one for a, a drone. Oh. And we then fly it down, um, we're trying to fly it in the Amazon to try and document some of the you know, typical LIDAR stuff, try and document through the canopy in the Amazon. Now, there's a lot of problems with the drone method in terms of range and so forth that you can actually access and then how it takes off and all these kind of things that made it impractical. So I ended up attaching it to a helicopter, which gave us much bigger range and more flexibility. Um, there's still issues with how the data collected and it's, it's not the perfect data, but we've got data which we can start to peel away, you know, the, the canopy. Um, 
So we've flown in a couple areas. We flew a few areas in Brazil. Um, one area we were looking actually more at the, the forest canopy itself. And we were trying to do some conservation work with a group. But we thought, based on some predict predictive models, we were expecting there to be a load of archaeology, including some geoglyphs and uh, ring villages. Turns out there's none there. So that was really interesting to us. But then when you see the landscape there and actually walk some of it, you realize how broken the landscape is and that it's actually not ideal for these archaeological sites. And then as you go into the deforested areas or the other areas we scanned, and you see how rich the archaeology and how dense it is, you also see that change in the landscape and the actual mm. geomorphology. And you go, oh, okay, so I actually do get a better sense of where things are. So we can now adjust our predictive models of where we expect sites to be based on these biogeographic uh, factors. So having that negative archaeology, I always find actually really important. <laughs> it helps define the actual archaeology itself. But what we did find are probably the, some of the main things is in Brazil, uh, in this Acre region, so the deforestation reveal, revealed some of these geoglyphs, the big geometric shaped earthworks. Geoglyphs is a horrible name for it, which one of the earliest people to find it called them geoglyphs, but it obviously conjures up ideas of Nazca or something like that, but they're not that intricate. They're more squares or circles. Um, but these earthworks, we were able to document a lot more of them under the canopy, but more focused actually on the ring villages. The earthworks date, the big earthworks date more like 3,000 to 2,000 years ago, maybe two and a half thousand years ago. And then the earthwork, these circular ring villages are only about 1,500 years. Now, whether there's a direct um, overlap between the two architectural styles or not, we don't know. There may be a hiatus in between, but certainly there's a transformation culturally between the construction of these large earthworks. We still have no idea where those people lived. These seem to be more ceremonial. There's no domestic architecture, there's no domestic refuse associated with them. Um, but then you've got these later villages, which are circular in shape, but formed of mounds. Um, fairly simple concept, but they're connected by road networks as well. So these appear later. So whether there's a yeah, cultural transformation or a new group enters the area, we don't know yet. We need some a lot more work out there. But we're able to document a lot more of that and what the LIDAR really helped us do is rather than these single um, structures or villages which had been previously documented, we could start to connect them up and show the landscape scale of them. And also show from multiple examples how they're actually very specifically arranged. And it's almost like we often refer to them um, or name them as sol is something, like sun of something, being the sun in the sky. Because they almost radiate out like um, like the rays of the sun, how, how we conceive of the sun. But when we also look at them, they're almost cardinally directional uh, arrangements with these roads radiating out, almost like the ticks of a clock with the, the mounds. So there's almost a grammar to them. So we did some analysis on the ones we could document, and we managed to document maybe 35 more using the LiDAR to peel away landscapes and also in the, the open areas and you really start to see this the landscape scale of this tradition and some of the when you mentioned the alignments i mean are some of those alignments uh north south or do they are we getting into some of those alignments like in the 
in the southeast of the United States where we have the mound works, which are in alignment as solstitial markers or equinoctial markers? Do we have any of that uh, type evidence there? There's a, yeah, I think we, I think it will be ultimately confirmed that there is a cardinal alignment. Um, there's a range, certainly, and there's potentially a hierarchy to um, what the arrangement is, whether a natural feature supersedes. So the location in, in relation to a river maybe actually sways the, the arrangement. But um, there certainly does seem to be some of the major roads coming out of them um, there's major and minor roads and you can tell but it's very clear how big the roads are how deep the furrows are some architecture is supporting there's often a north-south often these are the east-west which matches up fairly closely to the cardinal directions so the idea that they could uh, plan their architecture based on the movement of the sun is certainly <laughs> yeah likely to hold weight yeah, that's interesting that's interesting i think we need a few more examples before we can really confirm those yeah, and, and do you have some of those maps um, on hand? I, I, if, you, if, you, if you've got some, I'd love for you to uh, email them over to me. I'd love to have a look at those. Yeah, we just had a, we had a publication recently uh, come out on in. It was actually in a remote sensing journal, I think, or a computing journal. It was an odd place where we got invited to talk. And, um, and then there's been a bit of media attention, actually, along with this documentary that's just come out. But, uh, yeah, I'll... I'll I'll have to search for it. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't have to be immediately, but if you get that to me, that's uh, is of great interest to me. Um, and then what do you make of the Denisovian gene signature, which is found in the, the heart of the Amazon? Um, it doesn't appear to have a real definitive pathway of arrival. What, what is your take on, on where, we, where that signature comes from? Yeah, they, there's some interesting genetics in the Amazon and some of the, even the, the bones out of Pedro, uh, Pintada, there's almost this separate group that came in. Now, I struggle with some of the genetics, I must admit. It's, I find it complicated to read, and that's partly the way it's written. <laughs> I was actually part of one of the uh, genetic papers because we donated a couple of um, uh, skeletons to the project. And reading through the paper and editing it, even the editor stage, I don't know what you're saying about our skeletons. <laughs> it's so hard to <laughs> understand. Um, I think we're, we're, we're going to see a, a general trend, though, of the first migration of peoples into the Americas and then down entering South America and then spreading. It does seem to be that there's a second wave that comes later and occupies most of North America, most of Central America, whereas you get these distinct genetic lines in South America, which do seem to be part of the early migration. Now, so I don't think it's going to be too surprising, ultimately, if we find separate genetic lines appearing, potentially arriving through different routes or um, ones which don't mix uh, with, the, with the general populations. But uh, until we get a lot more samples, I don't think we're going to really resolve exactly what's going on. But uh, I think the general trend of the initial wave entering the Americas, one get that initial wave actually arriving in South America and then spreading uh, with then a second wave coming through and replacing a lot of that early wave and becoming a dominant in north and central america certainly based on the sample size we have currently that seems to be the the general situation okay okay interesting um 
And then, uh, Mark, if you could go back in time and speak with yourself as a, an 18 or 20 year old young man, uh, knowing what you know now, what, uh, what advice would you have for that young fellow? I think because I've had such an interesting route into where I am, coming from an unrelated field, even at master's level, it essentially was unrelated. So the main thing that, um, that I think looking back on my life and when I talk to my own students now and they're going, well, how'd you get into this? And how'd you get into that? How'd you do this? I can't really tell them to go and lie in a hammock and read a book because the chances of that working out for them is fairly slim. But I think the thing that has always been key to my career path is just being adaptable and um, taking opportunity when they arrive. So every step along the way and every change I've made, and there's, I'm in a place now where I didn't expect to be at all, um, working on context I never expected to, it's all come because an opportunity arose and I was adaptable at the time and just enjoy it. And it's such fun stuff that even if it all ends tomorrow, I can't really complain about the life I've had. So it's, uh, I think mean, having that adaptability and just being open to, um, to change and to the opportunity that presented, that's a way to do it. Well, I think that's uh, probably what our ancestors did, you know, these, these folks that we've been talking about the last uh, hour and a bit here. I mean, that's probably the real key to their success was being adaptable, open to change and seizing opportunities as they uh, present themselves. I think so. I mean, for me to be able to survive fairly well out in the, in the bush, doing some archaeology and living in some of the rough locations, let's think, yeah, <laughs> living part of that life, at least, even if I do take a lot of rice and beans with me. <laughs> there you go. Uh, and so what's on, the, what's on the horizon in terms of new research and areas of exploration for you? Yeah, so obviously we're hoping to go back to the field next year. Um, the plan is probably April after our teaching's done for the next semester. Um, so we'd be heading back to Columbia is the idea. Certainly our colleagues in Columbia, uh, we managed to get them out to one of the sites recently. So we're still continuing the research, but we want to get back out and do the digging. Um, the big movement, I think, is trying to combine this project. We've only just started the project, but really combine everyone together. So we're meeting with our climate guys and our paleoecologists who all want to talk about these big glacial mo movements, but we want to focus them in on humans and try and really address things like the Younger Dryas and how people were impacted during this time and what impact humans had. So trying to look at how we can develop a methodology to answer these questions is really exciting. Beyond just the fieldwork part, actually that methodological side is, is fascinating to try and combine the different proxies and try and you know weed out the, at least get a hypothesis and get a, uh, a null hypothesis as well. So that's gonna be key. And then the other thing which has really struck us is that with the documentary on Channel 4, which is currently airing, we're part, part way through it, it's a three-parter, I think, and we just had the second episode. Um, that one's focusing on all of Amazon. So it works with us while we're working on our Brazil stuff and our Bolivia work and Colombia, and then our colleagues working in the same areas as well. But the thing that really took the, um, the public's attention was this rock art from Colombia. I mean, it's so visual, so it's probably not surprising. But up till now, it hadn't been our focus. We had, when we went to these areas, yes, we were blown away by the rock art, but we're then immediately looking at the ground and digging holes and trying to get the, the carbon dates. We we're trying to get the samples for phytoliths and things like this. So we never really stopped to then plan what to do about the rock art. So I think 
with the public attention clearly being on that side, we might start to move towards there and try and start the documentation analysis of the rock art beyond our just brief cursory look and going, oh, this is pretty and this represents this. We need to be something more systematic. So I think we're going to see a new focus on that and you know, try and build our team beyond the core group uh, to include some people who are specialized in this. Excellent. Excellent. And then how can listeners learn more about you and your work if they want to do some follow-up uh, investigation? Yeah, so we do have a website. Um, you can look up Last Journey. So kind of the, the project name. Um, our Twitter, Last Journey 5, is uh, fairly new, but we're trying to keep that up, up and running. We're certainly post um, new finds and developments in the project. And then, of course, myself, um, Jose Uriarte here at Exeter. We're always happy to chat about the project, as well as our colleagues in Colombia. Excellent. All right, yeah, I'll put uh, I'll put a link, couple links up on the, in the show notes, and people can dig deeper if they if they like. And and the what was the name of that documentary that you alluded to? Uh, lost. Oh, geez, lost. No, what is it? <laughs> I can't remember. I've not seen it yet because I'm scared of watching myself. Um, Jungle Mystery, Lost Kingdoms of the Amazon. Okay, great. I'll get that. Yeah, as well. it's, a, it's Channel 4 in the UK, so they're airing right now. Um, I don't know about international distribution from them, but there's then going to be a Discovery Channel version at some point, which I think the, the UK version with the Channel 4 is a free party with a presenter being the one who kind of leads us through. Um, she does a great job. I think the discovery one's going to be more focused just on the research. So that should be coming out soon as well. Excellent. Excellent. All right, sir. Well, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed uh, getting some of those details and uh, uh, hearing firsthand your experiences in the jungle. It's great. (laughs) It's a good time. Can't wait to get back. Yeah, very good. Well, let's uh, let's look to circle back here in the future once you've uh, had another field season under your belt and uh, maybe we have some more discoveries to chat about. Wonderful. Yeah, always happy to chat. All right. Fantastic, sir. Uh, uh, Have a great Christmas and um, we'll speak again. Yes, you too. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Cheers, mate. Bye-bye.